passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right. Thanks, everyone, uh, for filling that out. If you haven't quite finished it yet, um, we'd, we'd appreciate it if you take a little bit of time um, in the rest of the service or at the end of the service uh, just to finish that up and then place it again in the um, back of the pew in front of you, and we'll have some people um, come and pick those up after the service. Uh, this morning, we are continuing in 1 Samuel. Uh, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 21, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up uh, to that chapter. Uh, we're going to see the aftermath of David's flight from Gibeah. And so, um, I, I just want to take a moment to just remind ourselves uh, of what David's life has been like uh, to this point as we've seen it in the book of 1 Samuel. So back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see that David is privately anointed to be the future king of Israel. And only his, his immediate family knows it, and yet like shortly after those events, David is um, invited into the court of the current king, King Saul, uh, to serve as a part-time court musician. Then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we see that David is the only one who's willing to step forward and defend the honor of God, uh, fights Goliath, this uh, giant from uh, Philistia, and uh, God works an astonishing victory for the people of Israel through the faith, through the commitment to the glory of God of David. And from that moment forward, it seems like David's life is a whirlwind, uh, to put it mildly. He, he becomes the, the darling of Israel after that, and he's one of the trusted counselors of the current king. He's the most successful general in Israel. He even marries the king's daughter. It's like a fairy tale for David. Everything seems to be too good to be true, and of course, it is. It doesn't last. Saul is consumed with jealousy over all of David's success, and he, so he takes it upon himself to, to kill David, and plan after plan after plan of Saul fails because of God's provision for David. Time after time after time, God intervenes to save David, and yet for David, it might not have seemed that way because God uses both supernatural but also very ordinary means to provide for his future king. And so if we find ourselves, David, at the end of chapter 20, he's, he's fleeing the capital. He's unsure of where he's supposed to go. He's lost everything. He's lost his wife. He's lost his possessions. He's lost his reputation. Everything is gone. When we get to 1 Samuel chapter 21, David's life has fallen apart. And I can just about guarantee Back in, in chapter 16, when David is anointed as the future king of Israel, he didn't expect that mean, to mean that the, the current king is going to do everything in his power to kill you, and you're going to have to spend years of your life on the run. And so as we open our Bibles to chapter 21, we see that David has a decision to make. David, in this moment, has been anointed king, but his life doesn't look like that, and so David has to ask, who will he trust? This is an important question for us to ask ourselves this morning as well. Who will we trust when our lives are falling apart? It's easy for us to declare with our words, I trust in the Lord when life is going well. But what about when the floor falls out from underneath you? And maybe surprisingly for us, when we get to chapter 21, we see that this is a chapter filled with failure. 
failure on David's part. David has his back up against the wall, and yet rather than turning to the Lord as he's done so many times in his life, instead he, he relies on himself. He relies on his own ingenuity. He runs to military strength. He runs to political alliances rather than running to God. He runs to everywhere else hoping to find someone who will save him. David, in this chapter, rather than trusting the Lord in the midst of his trials, his actions say, I don't know if God can be trusted. And this is an incredibly important passage for us this morning. I think there's a lot that we can learn from these verses. This passage forces us to ask about ourselves, to look inward and say, when I am faced with trials, when I'm faced with hardship, when I'm faced with affliction, who will I trust? This passage rebukes our reliance on ourselves, our own ingenuity when we get into times of stress. But probably more importantly, it reminds us of the unending mercy and kindness of God. Because in spite of all of David's running from God, God remains steadfast and never forsakes David, never forsakes me when I go astray. That's what this morning's passage is about. It's, it's three short stories of how David reacts when he is ruled by fear, but they also show us the unending patience of God. And if you're anything like me, again, this is a passage that you desperately need to hear. I need to hear the warning of this passage about not trusting the Lord when things aren't going my way, but also I need to be reminded of the patience of God for someone like me who doesn't give up in his kindness and continues to walk steadfastly with me. Let's go ahead and jump into God's word, but before we do that, I want to pause, pray for us once more. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, I just want to start by saying thank you for being patient. What an incredible gift it is that you are a patient God. As we wander, as we go astray, as we are faithless, thank you for being faithful. And Father, as we open your word this morning, I ask that you would reveal yourself to us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would strengthen our weak faith this morning, that you would help us to be a people who increasingly trust in our loving God and our Savior, not only in the good times, but also in the bad. That's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so I mentioned this is just a collection of three short stories. Let's go ahead and look at the first one. The first one is found in verses 1 through 9. It's David in the city of Nob. So uh, please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter of which, about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women... And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when we go, I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, 
Then you have not, excuse me, then you have you not here a spear and a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Amen. At the end of chapter 20, we see that David leaves Gibeah, he leaves his best friend Jonathan, knowing that he has to run for his life, and yet he has no idea where to go. After all, where would he go? He has no food, he has no one he can rely on, he has no clothes, he has no place of refuge to turn to. For David, he appears to make the right decision, at least at the beginning of this chapter. He, he heads to Nob. Let's go ahead and throw that map up here for a moment to show us the proximity of Gibeah and Nob. It's about two miles away from the capital city of Gibeah where David is fleeing from. So it's a natural first stop for David in this moment as he's trying to escape from Saul. But more importantly, for a generation or two, Nob has been the location of the tabernacle. It's a location, it's the center of worship for the people of Israel. It's the place where the priests now live. And so if you're seeking guidance, this is an incredible good place to start. But notice what happens when David arrives in Nob. Ahimelech, the priest, comes out to meet him, but instead of meeting him with a greeting, he is, according to verse 1, trembling. Ahimelech has heard these rumors that there's this falling out between David and Saul. And when David, who's always leading the army as a commander of the army, shows up by himself, Ahimelech concludes, rightly, by the way, that David is on the run. That David is up to something that Saul wouldn't approve of. And so Ahimelech asks David, why are you alone? Why is there no one with you in verse 1? And David is faced with this decision in this moment. How will David respond to this question from Ahimelech? It's, it's risky for him to tell the truth. Ahimelech and the priests might turn David over to Saul. But remember what David is like in the book of 1 Samuel to this moment. Back in chapter 17, it was risky for David to stand before Goliath when no one else would do it. This is the same David that we have seen God deliver time and time again, that that David understands that God is with him. God has delivered him from Saul's hand time and time again. So surely, even though it's risky business for him to respond with the truth in this moment, he will respond with faith and trust in the Lord, right? No, that's not what we see from David. In the thick of this trial, David responds not with trust in the Lord, he instead responds with fear. Rather than relying on the Lord to be his deliverer, as he has time and time before, he instead decides to lie. He instead decides to rely on his own ingenuity to get him away from danger. And I don't know about you, but I see a lot of myself and David in this moment. Maybe not the lying per se, but certainly this heart that panics when things seem to be out of control and that rather than running to God, runs to my own strength my own ability, my own plans in order to get out of a tough spot. What about you? When you are faced with hardship and trial, what's your first move? Is it a move toward God or is it a move toward yourself to cry out to the Lord or to dig down deep to get yourself out of trouble? Again, for David, he decides to dig down deep. 
He makes up a lie on the spot. He claims that he's on his own because he's been sent on a secret mission. It was such an urgent mission that he will actually meet up with the rest of the army later. But now he needs some food. So can Ahimelech help him? And Ahimelech is, is apparently taken in by David's lie because David is a faithful follower of the Lord. And he's willing to provide David with some food for him and the two or three men that are with him. But there's a problem. The only food that is available in Nob at this moment is the bread of the presence. So let's go back to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25 tells us of how worship takes place in Israel, how it's supposed to be set up and structured. And one of the commandments for worship in the Old Testament is that every Sabbath, the priests would set out 12 loaves of bread in the tabernacle. And those 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the tribes of Israel, was meant to remind the people that God, during the Exodus, provided for his people's needs. And every week there was supposed to be new bread put out. And after that bread was put out, the old bread would be eaten by the priests. And this was a, a, a part of the ritual of the people of Israel at the time of David. And apparently, this is the only time or the only type of bread that is available in Nob. Now, I just want you to pause for a moment because I think the text is hinting at something here. Notice what I just said from Leviticus chapter 25 is the purpose of the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence was set out as a reminder of what? Of God's provision for his people in the Exodus. Might even go further and say God's provision for his people in the wilderness when they had no home. And now we find David in this moment, soon to be in the wilderness, not having a home. And the only bread that is available is the bread of the presence. This reminder that God, in the face of impossible odds, takes care of his people. Now, why is David lying? In this moment, it's because David doesn't trust God to take care of him. He thinks that he has to do it by himself. And in this moment, David is saying with his actions, God, I just can't trust you right now. I have to take care of myself. No one else can I depend on except myself. And I think the only bread that's available in Nob, being the bread of the presence, is intentional here because God is trying to get a hold of David's attention. He's trying to remind David, if, if David's willing to listen with his bread of the presence, I'm the God who takes care of my people. I did it in the Exodus, and I will do it again today as well. But as is all too often the case, when we run from God, we run hard. And so David here, he has tunnel vision, and he misses the point of the bread of the presence, and rather than waking from his spiritual slumber, rather than trusting in the Lord, he says, yeah, you know what, the men that are with me, myself, uh, we meet your requirements to eat the bread, and so we're ceremonially clean, just go ahead and give us that bread. And then the, the bread's being packed up in this moment, and then the text tells us in verse 7 that there's this other person here, Doeg, the Edomite, the, the chief shepherd of Saul. And I imagine that seeing Doeg here sparks a little bit of panic in David. 
And so he asks a somewhat ridiculous question. Does the priest have a spear or a sword on hand? And his reasoning, again, is weak. He says, it's because I didn't have a chance to pack my own weapons, so do you have anything? And the priest tells him, yeah, you know what, we actually do have a sword, but it's, it's the sword of Goliath. That's the only one that we have here. And after the events of, of chapter 17, apparently the sword of Goliath was taken from Goliath by David, and, and David decided to bring it and give it to the priests at Nob, and it was put in the tabernacle as a reminder that it wasn't David so much who defeated Goliath, but it was the Lord who defeated Goliath, who defeated the Philistines. He, he God, was the one who delivered his people. And if the bread of the presence is supposed to be a reminder of David is paying attention of God's provision for his people, how much more is the sword of Goliath? Notice what Ahimelech says when he's describing the sword here in verse 9. He says, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. It's a very personal reminder from the priest here to David that just like the bread of the presence, God took care of his people centuries ago, God also took care of you just a couple chapters ago, just a couple years ago, that God used you. It's almost as if God is, is, is talking to David in this moment and saying, what are you doing, my son? Like, why are you acting this way? Remember how I took care of you back in the Valley of Elah when you stood up to Goliath? Remember how you, in faith, declared in, in verse 37 of chapter 17, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine." Remember how I took care of you time and time again in these past years as you've been running from Saul as he's trying to kill you. Am I not any longer worthy of your trust? Will I not still care for you in this moment? But again, David is, is too consumed with fear and self-reliance to listen to the whispers of God in this passage. And so the man who stood before a giant with nothing but a sling and a stone now runs to the pagan giant's sword to defend himself and deliver him from trouble. What a tragic picture of David in this passage. This man who has trusted the Lord and every example that we've seen of him now no longer trusting the Lord. Instead, it stakes all of his hope on his ability to deceive, all of his hope on the power of the sword. How often are we like David today? All too often we find ourselves, either because of our pride or our misplaced sense of importance, we refuse to run to the Lord to trust him. And we might not trust in the power of the sword, but sometimes we might. We might not trust in the power of the sword, but we're, we're tempted to, to place our trust in the world's weapons. We're, we're tempted to place our trust in our bank account. We might not lie when we're faced with hardship and trial, but we certainly rely on ourselves. David's experience here in Nob is a, levels this sobering question at each of us when we are faced with trials, when our lives are falling apart. Who will we trust? And if possible, it gets even worse for David. That's what we see in the second story. He runs from Nob to Gath, verses 10 through 15. 
And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Let's go ahead and throw that map up once more to see where now David has run. David has run from Nob, just as he did from Gibeah. This time he heads for Gath. Gath, if you're familiar with it, is one of the leading cities of the Philistines. I think it's worth reminding ourselves of the the literary device that is the Philistines in the book of 1 Samuel. The Philistines kind of serve as the thermometer for the faith of the people of Israel. So when the Philistines are flourishing, that is a reminder that the people of Israel, their faith is dwindling. And when the people of Israel are faithful to the Lord, then the Philistines are no longer a threat, no longer a problem. So the fact here that David runs from Israel to Philistia speaks all we need to hear about the the status of David's heart in this moment. The seriousness of the peril that David finds himself in, not so much physically, but spiritually in this moment. See, David has relied on his own ability to get out of Nob. He puts his faith in the weapons of the world, and now he runs to Israel's enemies for sanctuary. There's this sad irony here when it comes to David. David goes to Gath wearing Goliath's sword to seek sanctuary in Gath. Meanwhile, Gath being the hometown of Goliath, the, the one that, that the Lord slaughtered through David because David was trusting in the Lord. Now David is running to the place of Goliath's birth. It's, it's possible. I don't know what David's thinking in this moment. It's possible that David thinks that he can get away with, without being recognized in this moment. He thinks, well, maybe I can just pretend to be a, a, a nobody and serve as a mercenary for the Philistines. Saul certainly won't follow me here. It's a gath. But David's plans and schemes fall apart almost immediately. He, he enters into Gath, and everyone recognizes that he is a great champion of Israel. He's even called the king of Israel by the Philistines. And just like before, David, in this moment, is faced with a decision. Again, it's very risky for David to tell the truth. The Philistines aren't going to be thrilled about his presence here, the one who has slaughtered hundreds, maybe thousands of Philistines. But again, this is the David of whom it is written, and David has success in all his undertakings, and that's a reference to military undertakings in chapter 18, because the Lord was with him. So surely in this moment, David's going to wake up, right? He's in this spiritual slumber. Surely he's going to wake up. He's going to return to the Lord. The God has delivered him in the past. He's going to deliver him again. But no, David doesn't run to the Lord in his distress. He instead trusts in his ability to think quickly on his feet. And he begins to act like a madman. 
And it's so convincing that Akish is convinced that, you know what, this actually isn't David at all. This isn't the champion of Israel. It's just some person who is out of his mind and is claiming to be David. And Akish lets him go. David escapes again. But notice how dangerous of a situation David finds himself in in this moment because of his unwillingness to trust in the Lord. Back in chapter 18, we read a description of King Saul. Let's go ahead and throw that up, 18 verse 10. It says this, the next day a harmful spirit from Saul, or excuse me, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Go to, again to verse 13 of chapter 21. How is David described? So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. You see the parallel here? David, the future king of Israel, is beginning to act like Saul. He's beginning to act like the rejected king. I know the reasons are different. There's not an evil spirit that's afflicting David in this moment. The situation isn't the exact same, and yet the parallels are there. David, in his unwillingness to trust in the Lord, is beginning to act like Saul. He's getting more and more in common with Saul. And if he doesn't turn around before it's too late, there will be another rejected king in Israel. Roger Ellsworth sums up David of 1 Samuel 21 really well. He puts it this way, The man who stood calmly before Goliath because he was possessed with faith now acts like a maniac because he is possessed with fear. We have this powerful contrast between the height of David, this man of faith, to the David that we have in this chapter this morning. How far has David fallen? The beautiful example of what does it mean to follow the Lord faithfully, the Lord's chosen king, is trapped in this cycle of fear and unbelief. And again, I think it's crucial for us to ask ourselves to not miss the warning of David in this moment. Whenever the unknown comes upon us, Where do we turn? Who will we place our trust in? Is it the Lord who faithfully cares for His people? Or like David, will fear drive you to self-reliance? The only one that you can trust is yourself. The good news is God is not done with David. And when we find ourselves trapped in a cycle of unbelief, God isn't done with us either. Let's turn our attention to the final story, David in Adullam and Moab, starting in verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. 
and there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them there with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David depart, departed and went into the forest of Hereth. I confess, I don't really know what to make of these verses. I'm not really sure. I, on the one hand, it seems like there's more of the same from David. Now he's not running to Gath, he's instead running to Moab. So he just goes east instead of west. And yet at the same time, he does so for what seems to be admirable reasons. He wants to make sure his parents are taken care of. We actually know from the book of Psalms that David writes two psalms in this cave of Adullam. Psalm 37, or excuse me, Psalm 57, which I read earlier. Psalm 142, both of those are talking about this deep trust in the Lord that David has. So what do we make of this? I'm not really sure what to do with these verses, and honestly, it's probably, they're, they're probably complex because that's the way life is, right? David seems to be waking out of his spiritual slumber. He flees from Gath, and now he ends up in a cave about 10 miles southeast of Gath. And, and while he's hiding in this cave, he begins to, to wake up. He begins to return to the Lord. But as I know all too well, two steps forward in my spiritual walk are oftentimes met with one step back. And so David runs to Moab. Now, David's trip to Moab does make sense. Remember that David is a descendant of a Moabite. His great-grandmother, Ruth, was from Moab. And so it makes sense for him to bring his parents to Moab, asking the king to take care of them until, as he says in verse 3, I know what God will do for me. I don't take that as a statement of faith from David. I think it's a, a statement of skepticism. David is no longer convinced that God is going to deliver on his promises. So he says to the king of Moab, hey, I need you to watch after my parents until I figure out what God's going to do. If he's going to be good or if he's going, going to be evil toward me. Whatever comes to pass, I need you to take care of my parents until I figure out what God has planned for me. And I think David's plan to take care of his parents is a really good thing. He apparently goes to Moab, and, and they're left there. But here's the problem. David stays in Moab. We see in verse 5, the prophet Gad tells David to go into the land of Judah. It implies that he is not in the land of Judah. He's outside of the land. He's staying in Moab. He thinks, if I can stay out of Israel, then I will avoid Saul. And it's not until a prophet speaks that David decides to return. But when that prophet speaks, David listens. Verse 5, I think, is the most important part of this passage. What do we see in verse 5? After David, all that he has done, all of the unbelief, all of the the downward spiral of self-reliance running from God, notice, God still speaks to him. God still speaks to David. Verse 5 tells us that God hasn't given up on David. 
that God still has a plan for him. And it is really reassuring that when we find ourselves in the spiral of self-reliance that we see here from David in 1 Samuel 21, the beginning of 22, God does the same thing for us. He's still patient. He's still kind. He's still merciful. He still speaks. He still has a plan for you. Verse 5 is also beautiful because in it we see David respond with obedience. He shakes off the spiritual slumber of unbelief that has ruled his heart in this passage. Did you notice? In chapter 21, God is, is absent. God is, is not a part of David's decision-making, not a part of God's thinking. While David is in Nob, while he is in Gath, David does not seek the Lord. He does not rely upon him. Verse 21, David is a functional, functional atheist. He may profess with his mouth that he believes in and trusts in the Lord, and yet he's living a life as though God doesn't exist. But notice what happens when God speaks. God speaks to David, and, and that speaking is uninvited. David is, is happy staying in the land of Moab. And yet God breaks into David's life and speaks, and notice how David responds. He listens. He responds with obedience. Even when listening to God, obeying God, comes with great personal cost. He's going to have to leave behind security in Moab and go back to uncertainty in Judah. And yet David, after he hears the voice of God, finally realizes that trials in the will of God are better than temporary security that comes from unbelief. I think that's a really important truth for us to grasp. It's crucial for us to understand that it is better to face hardship in obedience to the will of God rather than to search after the illusion of ease in disobedience. In fact, that's the, the first of four lessons I think we must grasp from this passage this morning. It is better to face trials in obedience to God than it is to find comfort in disobedience to him. David's return to Judah in verse 5 is not the end of his trials. You flip through the rest of 1 Samuel, you'll see that that's very clear. But David, reflecting later on on the events of 1 Samuel 21, reflecting on God's faithfulness in the midst of his unbelief and God's deliverance of him from the people of Gath, David writes these words in Psalm 34. This beautiful psalm. He says this, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
David writes those words while reflecting on his time in Gath. He writes from a place of correction that he sought comfort in the world, but he returned to the Lord. And yes, that meant more trials, that meant more hardships, and yet David still declares, taste and see that the Lord is good. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And the same is true for you and me as well. It is better to face trials and obedience to God than it is to find comfort and disobedience to him. Another thing that David teaches us in this passage, David is a sobering reminder of how easy it is for us to trust ourselves when life is out of control. It's a sobering reminder to us of just how easy it is for us to run to self rather than running to the Lord when things seem out of our control. As I studied these verses, it was easy to see that David is acting uh, out of unbelief, and yet at the same time, it is really hard to blame him because I see the same heart in myself, that when life is out of control, it is so much easier for me to grab the steering wheel, to be in control of where my life is going. When life isn't going the way that I want, no matter how small it might be, no matter how big it might be, my tendency is to take back control of my life. And I think that's the way it is for all of us. There's a warning here in this passage of how easy it is for us to trust in ourselves rather than trusting in the Lord when our lives get out of control. Another lesson from this text, God uses his word to call his people back to him. Notice the power of God's word in this passage. When David hears the word of God, it changes everything. It's in the silence where David is not hearing from God, where he goes astray, where he goes into unbelief. Today, we even have it better than David. We don't need a prophet to come and speak God's word to us. We have the very words of God that God speaks to us. Do you grasp the way the Holy Spirit uses the word of God when we open it, that God still speaks and he uses his word to draw us ever closer to him, to bolster our faith and our trust in him, to cultivate a life of obedience to him. God uses his word to call us back to him. Will we trust in him? One final lesson This passage reminds us that when we run from God, God is unending in patience and mercy. He's unending in patience and mercy. Through it all, God never forsakes David. When David lies, when David relies on himself and his own strength, when David tries to find refuge with the Lord's enemies and not the Lord, God doesn't forsake him. God is not in the business of forsaking his people. And in this regard, David is not special. David is not special because the same is true for you as well. No matter what you may do, God patiently waits for you to return. No matter how many times you turn your back on him, his mercy remains. No matter where we may turn, looking elsewhere, he invites us back. 
Take seriously the warning of this passage, yes, but don't miss the heart of God on display for wayward, unbelieving people like David and like us in this passage. All of these truths are meant to remind us of the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the trustworthiness of God, of God, and in that's the heart of this passage. It's a question who will you trust? And I hope that you, along with David, along with this passage, by the end of it, will say, Especially in trials, God is worthy of my trust. Especially in my trials, God is worthy of my trust. No matter what may be facing you right now, God is worthy of your trust. You can stake your life upon that truth. Especially in trials, in the moments where it's most tempting to turn to ourselves, God is worthy of our trust. Over the last several years, um, our our family has incorporated um, music as a way to help our children memorize scripture. And um, one, one passage that we've memorized as a family is Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. We call it the afraid song at home because it goes like this. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And those two verses have been a staple for our family. They've helped our kids get through being scared of the dark. And they've guided conversations after my dad died and my kids are afraid of death. David writes those words as he's reflecting back on his time in Gath. Psalm 56, David writes, just like Psalm 34, looking back on his time where he failed God, where he ran to to try to take care of himself rather than running to the Lord, where he was ruled by fear and said, you know what? I've learned my lesson. And it was such a transformational moment where David repents and he returns to the Lord that he actually, it's like he says, never again. And he writes a song to help him remember the trust that he can have in a God who will take care of him. And so he writes Psalm 56. And he says, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And what if we also, today, said never again? Never again will I turn when my life is out of control to self-reliance. Never again will I choose the weapons of the world rather than trusting in the Lord. Never again will I be ruled by fear because my circumstances are out of my control. Because I am trusting in a God who is worthy of my trust. That's the message of this passage.
that no matter what hardship is facing you, whatever those unknowns are, whether it's loss of family, change, unexpected hardship, headache, whatever it is, God is worthy of your trust. So who will you trust? Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm reminded of the words of the dad that we encounter in Mark's gospel who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I see that a lot in myself. It's, it's easy to confess a belief when things are going well, and yet I feel the ever-ending temptation to grab control of my life. So help us, God. Help us to trust you. Help us to join David in saying never again because we will trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.